I happen to be a big, big fan of the old comic strip Pogo, which I really regarded as one of the literary and artistic masterpieces uh, of the 20th century. And there are really kind of maybe a thousand memorable things written for and spoken by the characters of Pogo. And people only ever quote one. The other 999, they just don't know about. Uh, And the one they always quote is the one that I never quote because I'm just so tired of hearing it. But it it fits today. We have met the enemy, and he is us. Um, That is, I think, increasingly (laughs) obvious um, that we are are our own enemies. Uh, We are doing things to this planet uh, that are bad for the planet and bad for many of the other species on the planet, but they're probably especially bad for us. Uh, And the question is, what do we do about that? What, uh, in our desperation, can we try to do? So we're going to do three different things today to sort of frame this question in a couple of different ways. Uh, This originally started out as a show about trash cans. So it's still a show. It's not a show that's not about trash cans. Uh, There's still going to be trash cans in the show. We're going to talk about trash cans. We're also going to talk about something we've alluded to in shows of the past, and that is the whole idea of re-engineering the sky, I guess you'd say, in order to make sunlight less warm in certain places. Um, I know that sounds like something that could maybe go wrong, and it is something that people worry about. It worry about it going wrong, uh, but we're just going to put a, a larger framework, a philosophical framework around this. And anytime we put a philosophical framework around anything, um, well, we have to talk to Jonathan Keats. I mean, that's just mandatory. Uh, he's He's like the Christo of philosophy. You know how Christo's always like wrapping things and stuff like that? Well, he, he's like that, but he wraps it in philosophy and sometimes other things as well. Conceptual artist, experimental philosopher, known for creating a variety of large-scale thought experiments. His latest project, Pioneers of the Greater Holocene, has kicked off just this month. We'll explain to you what that is, but also with us for the part of this conversation as well, or this part of the conversation, is Naomi Oreskes, a professor of the history of science at Harvard a member of the Anthropocene Working Group uh, and author of several books, including the upcoming Why Trust Science. So, you know, in a way, these two guests are going to uh, take up slightly different positions, even though I think their underlying attitudes are essentially the same. So, Jonathan, I'll start with you. Um, The Holocene is technically the current geological epoch we're in. It's also a Bon Iver song. I don't know if that's important or not. Probably not. Uh, So, uh, pioneers of the greater Holocene, you're not willing to give up on the Holocene, right? I think that we need to give a lot of thought to it. We are on the verge of a redefinition, uh, geologically speaking. There already has been, in political discourse, a lot of talk about the Anthropocene, and it's getting taken very seriously in geological terms. But geology is, well, it works in geological time. And I think that if we go forward with defining ourselves to be in a new epoch, we effectively enter into that way of thinking of ourselves for a very long time to come, or perhaps we go extinct as a result of it. So I am looking to find a way in which we can potentially remain in the Holocene. The golden spike, the definition of definitional act for geologists of the Anthropocene 
has not yet been struck. And so we have a couple of years. And in those couple of years, what I'm hoping that the pioneers of the greater Holocene might do is to find an upper Holocene that the Anthropocene, rather than becoming an epoch, which typically is on the order of millions of years, maybe it's just an age or even an unfortunate interlude. All right. Well, let's hear from the other camp. I think you both believe the same underlying uh, conditions exist, uh, but uh, Naomi Oreskes, uh, make the case for the fact that the Anthropocene is already here. Okay. Well, this is an interesting uh, discussion because, of course, geology doesn't work in geological time. Geologists are people like everybody else, and we work in human time. And so we have this interesting challenge of trying to grapple in human time with what will be seen in the geological record in the future as part of geological time. So we're trying to assess and appraise what a future geologist looking at the rocks of our time period would see in those rocks. And so for us, the answer is pretty darn clear, that there is an enormous anthropogenic signal. Um, That signal becomes very dramatic and reaches the scale of globalness, or what we would call um, global synchrony from the geological standpoint. Um, That occurs around the middle of the 20th century. And so we think it's pretty clear that geologists... We can already see it in the rock record. We can see it in isotopic signatures. We can see it in chemical signatures. We can see it in changes in coral reefs and fossil communities. So all of these geological markers are there, uh, whether we like it or not. Defining the start of the Anthropocene does not tell us when the end is, and it could be that if humans, if we get our act together and we get greenhouse gases under control and we get consumption of other resources under control, that the Anthropocene could, in fact, be quite short-lived. I mean, that would be probably ideally what most of us would hope for, but we, don't, we can't specify that. All we can do is describe empirically what has actually happened, and those things, from our standpoint, are essentially indisputable. These are facts that are not about whether we like them or how we think about them or whether we think it's good or bad or whether we would... Sorry, I hope this doesn't sound too harsh, but it's not about if we would prefer to be in the Holocene. Sure, a lot of us would prefer that, but that's just not the reality of what we see in the rock record. And that's the challenge that the Anthropocene Working Group was asked to take on. Let me just ask one more question about that. I want to go back and forth between the two of you, but um, but Naomi, when you say in the rock record, we can see that we're in the uh, Anthropocene, how does that turn up in the rock record? Well, for example, if you're looking at marine sediments, um, you, we can find a geologist who would drill a core into the bottom of the ocean would find that in certain sediments starting around 1948, radionuclides that come from atomic bomb blasts, and these are radionuclides that did not exist in nature prior to men, well, I could say people, but it's mostly men, um, building and exploding atomic bombs. So that would be one example. Another example would be looking at the isotope composition of coral reefs, the carbon isotope composition and the oxygen isotope composition. We see significant measurable changes in those isotope compositions, again, starting in a dramatic way in the, say, mid to late 1940s into the 1950s, where we see definite changes, for example, in the carbon isotope features. All right. So, or the change in the atmosphere from burning greenhouse gases. So, okay, so so back to you, Jonathan. I don't think that you would deny very many of the things that she just said, but you just have a different approach to it, right? 
I'm in absolute agreement with everything that has been said. I Clearly, we are in a state of affairs where the planet is going to bear this signature for a very long time to come. The question is, can we bring about a new signature that lays on top of it, that is as strong, and that ultimately brackets it? The Anthropocene is weird. It is the first epoch of our own making. It's the first time that geologists have been in the curious situation of defining what we have done as opposed to defining what came before geology. So I think that we can take the strangeness another step and we can ask whether it's possible to write into the rock record some future that is a future that we actually want. To me, the Anthropocene is really a challenge more than anything else. I think that even going back to when the term was first coined by Paul Crutzen, that was really the intention, was to activate us as a society to realize the damage that we're doing. And I think that the process by which the definition is pursued and by which the research takes place to allow for that definition, all this is enormously valuable. We're understanding ourselves and we're understanding the damage that we are inflicting to a degree that we might otherwise never really recognize. But I think that it's also as a moment in time, that is to say the moment when a vote takes place, and the fact that we know that that's impending just a couple of years off, I think that that is a challenge and therefore an opportunity to define by our actions what comes next, since it was by our actions that the Anthropocene or the Anthropocenian, if it becomes merely an age within a sequence, that that was also as a result of our actions. So, uh, Naomi Oreskes, back to you. I, one question I have is, who ultimately has the final word about what epoch we're in? Who gets to decide uh, what the right name is and whether it's happening? Well, this is an important question. I think this is really where the crux of some of the disagreement or, dis, or differences in interpretation and meaning come in here. The Anthropocene Working Group is a committee that was commissioned by the International Stratigraphic Commission. This is a technical organization that has the job of defining what the stratigraphic units are, where their type locations for different stratigraphic units are around the globe. It's a highly technical organization, and the task that was set to the Anthropocene Working Group was a technical task of, of identifying first whether or not this Anthropocene signal was recognizable in the geologic record, if it was sufficiently recognizable to raise to the level of possibly being epoch, and, and if yes to both of those, then when did it begin? So these geologists view these as highly technical questions that are essentially independent of the meaning or significance of these developments. But of course, the reality is that geologists, scientists don't work in a vacuum. We work, live in a world where people are taking a great deal of meaning out of this concept of the Anthropocene. So in a sense, this debate is taking place on two different levels simultaneously. There's the technical level, which is what I'm a part of as a member of the working group. But then there's this larger historical, political, philosophical level, which I also take place in as a historian and as a citizen of the world. And I think it's that tension between those two different levels, which is really at the heart of our discussion here right now. Did everybody in your working group agree that we are in the Anthropocene epoch? 
Uh, we had four dissenting votes, and I think we had, I think it might have been two abstentions. Um, I was actually just looking at that before you called. Uh, there were 34 voting, qualified voting members. Uh, the number of votes received was 33, so 97% of us voted. Uh, 29 said yes, that was 88. Four said no, and there were no abstentions. Right. And so, I mean, ultimately, I guess, once again, as we explore the answer to the question that I asked, and I take your point that uh, there are technical working groups and technical commissions that have to think about this in a very structured way, and then there's just sort of public opinion and what how people understand things. But I would assume that the International Commission on Stratigraphy and or the International Union of Geological Sciences at some point needs to take a position on this epoch question. Right, exactly. And to the extent that we're able to, our charge is to make that decision on technical grounds. Now, of course, we realize that I, that, that idealization isn't, can't ever be 100% true, but to the extent that it's possible, this working group has strived, striven, strived? <laughs> we accept either one. Has, this group has attempted to focus on the technical questions, and we have had some conversations about how these larger cultural issues do or don't play into it. But I would say, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of members of the working group think that we were asked to answer a technical question. We intend to answer that technical question. And these larger questions about what it means or how long it will last or whether we can undo this damage that we've done, whether we can deliberately intervene to make the Anthropocene short, um, I think most of us would say those are all great questions, but they go beyond the charge of our working group. Right. And some of those questions need to be addressed by conceptual artists and experimental philosophers, exactly. which is why yeah, we why we have Jonathan Keats here right now. So, Jonathan, yeah. uh, over to you. We should probably just talk a little bit about, uh, we've had you on the show so many times, you're probably a record-setting guest here in the, in the as the Colin McEnroe show begins its second decade. Um, but tell us what the pioneers of, of the greater Holocene are doing these days. So the Pioneers of the Greater Holocene, we're a membership organization that is charged with trying to take up this challenge of bringing about an upper Holocene before the Anthropocene becomes the next geological epoch. That is to say, what sort of actions can we take as individuals and as a society that might lead to a geological signature strong enough that the International Union of Geological Sciences has to stand up and take notice. And that can involve very simple gestures as a starting point, I think, though we don't have much time given that the vote is impending. So, for instance, planting native grasses, that's one of the activities that the pioneers have been undertaking. Also, looking at lichens as not only capable of diminishing pollutants, but also of literally breaking down the anthropocenic layer as defined by concrete, which has been one of the many materials that's been looked at by geologists as defining the Anthropocene. So looking at these, as well as also looking at the world and trying to find those places that might be models for what we need to do and how remediation might take place, how some sort of a re-terraforming might take place. So not only to identify those places that have relatively little 
interference by humans because, of course, the radionucleotides, for instance, are everywhere, and so too are our actions at a more global scale in terms of how we have damaged the atmosphere and otherwise interfered with the planet in terms of climate change. But there are also, I think, more interestingly, are these places that are Superfund sites, for instance, that have in some cases been effectively remediated. And I think that we can look at those as potential sites where the golden spike of the upper Holocene might be struck. And so the pioneers are very much engaged in looking at those places, assessing what state they are in and what we can discover from those processes that might be applied more generally. You know, There's also the larger political scale of how do we change the politics and the economics of our time in order to be able to align with these larger goals. And I think that all of this potentially happens initially through these very small gestures and through the creation of an organization like this that simply poses the question, puts out the possibility that there might still be a Holocene ahead of us. Um, one of the things that you've done in the past, uh, we could do the whole highlight reel of Jonathan Keats on our show, but you've uh, blurred some of the distinctions between humans and non-human animals uh, and plants, for that matter. You gave cypress trees, easels, and paintbrushes to make art. You choreographed a ballet for honeybees, created a porn theater for plants, tr- produced a travel documentary for plants to watch, tried to turn potatoes into astronauts. Uh, I could go on. Uh, a photosynthetic restaurant where plants ate gourmet sunlight. So I'm guessing that the pioneers of the greater Holocene are not all necessarily people, right? There's ways in which uh, maybe you could enlist other species into this crusade? I think that other species are crucial. In fact, they are the majority. Uh, If you look at the latest assessment of biomass on the planet, we're less than 1%. Plants are over 80%. So I've been taking portraits of, I think, some of the great pioneers in our midst here in San Francisco. That is to say, the weeds, as we call them, growing out of sidewalk cracks that are effectively subsisting even within the world that we have created and are attempting to remediate or trying to make it livable for other species within their own small space. I think that we can look at them as model pioneers and we can strive to be more like them while also looking for the larger collaboration that's necessary between species, a sort of a genuine symbiosis that might come about in terms of how humans interact with all other species in terms of creating some sort of a a habitat, an ecosystem that might not only be literally in terms of the physical structure of a city, but also might be in terms of how, how economics might operate. Might economics resemble metabolism to a greater degree? And if so, because that really is the ultimate economics of all life on Earth, if our economics were to plug into that rather than riding on top of it, might that change everything? So, uh, Naomi Oreskes, not to acid rain on Jonathan Keats's parade, uh, but um, you recently gave a lecture, Is Climate Change the End? If so, the end of what? Uh, you talked about uh, anthropogenic climate change uh, as a marker of the end of certain things. Um, so, I don't know. How doomed are we? Well, I never use the phrase doomed. No, I, mean, you I don't think that's helpful and useful language. But look, I agree with practically everything Jonathan just said, and I just pulled up his website. And I think this is terrific. I'm totally on board. I'd like to fight 
I mean, I think, actually, I do fight the coming of the Anthropocene. All the work I've done on climate change, and particularly my work on climate change denial, is all about fighting back against the forces that tell us that, you know, a world of three degrees warming and 10 meters of sea level rise, that that's inevitable. I mean, I reject that completely, so I'm 100% on board with Jonathan's program. I think the only thing I would take issue would be the idea that defining the Anthropocene means that resigning ourselves to it. I think quite the contrary. The whole point of articulating actually just how dramatic these changes are, how huge they are, and also how recent. So I agree with Jonathan about this being very recent, but this is part of the fight against it. I think we're fighting for the same thing in two different ways, but it's about saying because it actually is relatively recent, it means it could be changed. So a lot of people don't realize that the great acceleration that Will Stefan has talked about, this giant increase in the use of resources, is really only since World War II. Lots of people were living very well before this great acceleration, and that tells us that what we have to change is not the entire history of mankind or the entire history of capitalism. It's really the way we've been operating and functioning for the last 50 years or so. And at least for me as a historian, that feels like an optimistic thing because it makes me feel like it's not as heavy a lift as it might otherwise seem. So we've been eating the sandwich, let's not throw away the crust. It's been a good crust, uh, and uh, it's a crust uh, worth trying to hang on to any way we can. Uh, Jonathan Keats, conceptual artist and experimental philosopher. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard, a member of the Anthropocene Working Group, and author of several books, including the upcoming Why Trust Science. Might have to have you back for that one. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we'll be talking talking about my favorite subject, trash cans. Everything ragged or rotten or rusty. Yes, I love, I love, I love trash. All right, we are back. Uh, We are going to get to the part uh, of the show now. We're, We're talking in general about ways in which uh, we have become our own worst enemies uh, and ways in which we might be able to do something about this. Uh, this is the trash can segment. And let me just say that this all started because I'm out walking around Connecticut a lot. And one of the things I've noticed is that trash cans are disappearing from places that ordinarily would be thought to need trash cans. And this is maybe impressed on me specifically because although right at the moment I, we're sort of in between dogs, uh, I, I'm a dog owner, uh, and I also we also wind up taking care of a lot of other people's dogs. And so when I take the, a dog out to a place like Penwood State Park, and the dog poops, and I pick up the poop in a plastic bag, and then I look around for a trash can, and there just isn't one anywhere. And then you sort of think, what are you going to do? And I've done things like kind of put the windshield wiper over it so I can drive away and find a trash can, because well, you don't really want it in the car. Um, but I also notice a lot of people just leaving their plastic bags full of dog poop around near the parking lot lot as if to say, all right, you're not going to give me a trash can here. Here's my dog poop. Uh, So joining us, we're going to talk a little bit later about how that particular thing and other things as well uh, have been handled in Japan. But joining us right now to give us an overview uh, is Nicholas Esposito, urban farmer, novelist, founder of the Head and the Hand Press. He's the director of the city of Philadelphia's Zero Waste and Litter Cabinet. Welcome to our conversation, Nick Esposito. Thanks, Colin. Glad to be here. So let's begin with one of the things that Philadelphia did. So to this point, 
Philadelphia kind of did an experiment, right, to see what what happens when there are more trash cans, less trash cans. Because one of the theories that's being invoked here, as I understand it, is if you don't have trash cans and you put up signs explaining what you're doing, people will just learn to cart out their waste. They'll learn to handle their litter on their own. So what have you learned about that? Yeah, so a lot of the way that this whole experiment kind of started was before I had the job I'm in now um, to the Zero Waste and Litter Cabinet, I was with the Parks and Recreation Department of Philadelphia, and that was actually a, a raging debate with even our operations staff um, talking about, you know, when there was problems with trash cans in parks, there was this thought, just take them out, just get rid of them, that they're causing more problems than they're worth. You would even hear that sometimes on our streets. So well, I was still with the Parks Department when I got this great opportunity. Uh, we have this really great program in Philadelphia called GovLab PHL. It's kind of our like government laboratory. It's run out of our mayor's policy office where they got um, different researchers from Swarthmore College, the New University of Pennsylvania, and Temple University to work with us to run behavioral science experiments. So as we started pitching experiments, uh, I brought this this phenomenon up that, you know, there's this issue with trash cans and just as the same reaction you had uh, that you just explained so eloquently, um, the researchers really gravitated towards this and thought, wow, this is a really interesting thing that we could be able to study. So let's put together a uh, randomized control trial to see what we can do. Um, in that process, I moved over to the zero waste and litter cabinet. Um, all the waste and litter issues I was dealing with in Parks and Rec took it you know, citywide to kind of figure out our, our larger strategy and brought this experiment with us. And we uh, developed and launched an experiment um, right when the cabinet began in about 2017. So this involved uh, trash cans uh, at four parks and four commercial corridors. Uh, each location was planned to receive a kind of a manipulation that would decrease the number of trash receptacles uh, or increase them. Um, so, you know, it might be hard to get really ironclad conclusive results out of something like this. But, but do you think you did learn something? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we did was on our commercial carters in our parks, um, we did dramatic increases for, we had a baseline for two weeks, a dramatic increase for two weeks, back to baseline for two weeks, a dramatic decrease, back to baseline, um, just through those different weeks seeing it. Again, some of the challenges, even from, you know, you talked about the the user, right, the resident having to use the can. There was also a large um, outreach we had to do with our frontline staff, the people cleaning those corridors, the people managing those parks. Um, and, you know, we did think we got some pretty good data back from it. And what we, what we did learn was um, the amount of staff time uh, picking up litter went through the roof. It went really high when you had to uh, take the trash cans away. And, you know, most people would say, well, duh, of course that would happen. Um, but what we also learned on the other side was just adding more trash cans which a lot of people just wish we could do all throughout the city, that wasn't the answer either. Like, even though we added more, it wasn't decreasing the litter that was already there when we struck the baseline. So there was a lot, there was nuance to it. And, um, but also within city government where there was that, you know, that talk, oh, just get rid of the trash cans. It's going to make the problem better. I mean, we pretty much definitively proved it's not within the conditions we're in here in Philadelphia. It is not going to solve the problem taking trash cans away. We just have to do it smarter and better with more strategy. Right. And there's another trust factor here, too, I think, and in my capacity as crabby citizen, which I occasionally turn into, particularly in this context. My immediate reaction, particularly when seeing signs up saying this is a trash-free area, there are no trash cans, you're responsible for your trash, is, well, they just don't want to, they don't want to have staff available to come and deal with this. This is a cost saving measure they you know this it has nothing to do with any kind of philosophical commitment to some some concept like this one and i'm sure in philadelphia you dealt with that too 
Sure. I mean, well, you'd be surprised how much philosophical uh, back and forth goes on within our, like, operations yes. frontline staff, which is really interesting. But, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're tasked with spending the tax money of one and a half million people, you want to do it as wisely as possible. And, you know, to make the case that, oh, this is causing more problems, it's more staff time by having these cans here, that could be a way of thinking. But, again, we wanted to really dig deep. And what we, again, uncovered was it's going to cause way more staff time now that the trash isn't at least concentrated within a can, even if it's dumped around the can, now that it's strewn throughout the park, now we have to go pick that up. So that we were able to, you know, there is still that economic balance. But again, I think what's even more interesting and why I love GovLab and the way that we're approaching these issues, we have a whole behavioral science wing of our cabinet, is we do need to have these kind of philosophical debates because it's about, you know, tax money and the economics, but it's also about how do we best serve our residents, our visitors, and our businesses. All right. So uh, to, to this conversation, we need to add, because I think it's also one of the problems with Philadelphia or anywhere else uh, here in the United States is, you know, everybody has their own idea of what's happening and how they should respond to it. And that's not to say that people in Japan don't, but uh, people in Japan sometimes, at least in my limited observation visiting there seem to be all on the same page about stuff a little bit more than we are. Uh, Alan Richards is joining us, privacy lawyer and writer based in Tokyo. Uh, he's a frequent contributor to the New York Times as well as City Lab, where I now want to read all of his articles because when I read carefully Japan, Japan reconsiders the trash can, I saw all these other Alan Richards articles about Japan and they all looked very interesting to me. But uh, Alan, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. So, um, Japan got interested in trash can removal, as I understand it, not exactly for some of the reasons we've been talking about, but more uh, after the 1995 sarin gas attacks, right? They just didn't want to have something around where you could plant something. Right. So, so as a result of the sarin attacks afterwards, um, trash cans in train stations, public parks, other public spaces were removed as a security precaution. And as time went on, that just sort of became the norm in Japan. And so, I mean, did so one of the things uh, that uh, Nick and his team uh, might have hoped for would be that people would simply learn how to cart waste out and take it home, figure out a comfortable way of doing that and managing that. And, and if for people who've ever been to Japan, you know that there's just a vending machine for every possible thing, including stuff you just couldn't imagine could be sold out of a vending machine. But but those things obviously would have often wrappers and other kinds of possible solid waste. So so did the people of Japan learn what they needed to learn to not, you know, have litter all over the streets? Yeah. Um, shortly after the, uh, the trash cans were removed, I, I, I think there was... Um, quite a high rate of compliance. It's one of the things that people used to complain about all the time about living in Japan was you'd go out for a night on the town and then you'd come home with three empty bottles, a bunch of candy wrappers in your bag. It's because there's no trash cans in public, you have to take all your garbage home with you and sort it at home. Right. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I'm going to weave Nick into this in just a second, but um, one of the things that Japan did to kind of boost that attitude was to create uh, an anti-littering superhero slash mascot. Uh, Alan, can you tell us about him? Right. So um, like most uh, public campaigns in, in Japan, there was uh there was a, a mascot created just to um, sort of, I guess it was more of a, an awareness campaign um, to sort of shore up around the edges uh, to make sure people were 
taking their trash home, not littering, being being good citizens. And I, I think that really built on um, sort of the underlying cultural approach to picking up after oneself in Japan. So, uh, so the Mangetsu Man was this uh, character. So, uh, you know, Nick, I don't know, is this something, Philadelphia already has the fanatic, right? Um, could you get him involved or it involved in, in, in boosting? Because ultimately what you really want, obviously, is not to be messing around with trash cans and manipulating the number of them. And you really want people to be responsible for how much solid waste they, they generate and what they do with it. Yeah, it's funny. This is a very apropos conversation right now because I actually just got back from Tokyo about two weeks ago, um, and I was there as part of the, uh, the Climate 40 cities. Um, we're part of the larger waste network throughout the world, so we had a bunch of the cities that have signed on to these very stringent uh, waste declarations all meeting up in Tokyo. And um, this the issue of trash cans didn't come up, but we were all just, you know, there was a lot of people from the West there commiserating around how sometimes hard it is to get our, um, our residents to do what we want them to do. And there was one gentleman in the uh, workshop from Yokohama and kind of turned to him and said, you know, how do you, like, the problem we have in the West is nobody wants to be told what to do. We value our freedom. And he said, oh, well, Japanese, we love being told what to do. So it was like kind of interesting to have, you know, it's a generalization, but he kind of said that joking, but there is some truth to it where you have, you know, these different cultural aspects of how are people going to respond to the messaging and respond to what you're doing. So from what I saw while I was there, again, I, saw the phenomenon of the no trash cans. I mean, I did see some litter on the streets, but for the most part, you know, people complied uh, and did what they had to do as a part of duty to their society. Um, again, that's a whole larger societal thing that I would probably benefit a lot of things in the, in the United States if we thought like that a little bit more. Um, but we have talked about, you know, those larger campaigns of how to get people to really connect with. Um, one line that we use a lot in the city is, um, you know, can you imagine, you know, there's a lot of things that we, services that people, you know, don't think we have in Philadelphia. And it's like, can you imagine all the things we, we could do more if we didn't have to spend so much time cleaning up litter, so much time cleaning up uh, illegal dumping? Like, that's something that could connect people back to it. Um, it's also funny you mentioned the sports teams because um, we definitely, you know, would want to connect with our sports teams on that. Uh, we have a lot of fans that, um, you know, the Philadelphia city itself is one and a half million people, but the region is about six million. And a lot of those people used to live in Philadelphia. Now they live in the suburbs, still call Philly home, but they come in from these other places, which sometimes are much cleaner, come to a game, you know, tailgate in the parking lot. Uh, we need to kind of get everyone, not just in the city, but the region on board with our messaging as well. And, you know, some, the sports teams are probably a good way to do that. So, um, Alan, a few things. First of all, one difference between the U.S. and Japan, Japan has no big open frontier. I mean, there just is a finite amount of space in Japan. And, and so one of the things that Japan has had to do is simply produce less waste because there really isn't anywhere to put it. Right. And so even before um, the sarin gas attacks and the, and the removal of the trash cans, Japan's always had very complex um, policies for how to separate one's trash, the recyclables. And it's, and it's quite strictly enforced um, by municipalities. And it owes, like you said, to the lack of space. There's just not enough room for landfills. So they have to be very conscientious of how they of how much waste they produce, but also how they deal with it. 
the one of the things I loved in your article because of the thing that I was talking to Nick about at the very beginning is what do you do with the plastic bag full of dog poop, particularly if you're not just walking back home with it. Uh, and uh, in your article, you talk about how they actually have magnets where they can you can attach the the bag of poop to your car so you can drive home with it. Um, just before we run out of time, Alan, one thing we should say is uh, when Nick visited recently, you might have seen a few more trash cans. They're actually coming back a little bit, not because the will of the Japanese have faltered, as I understand it, but because of us, because uh, people from tra- trash can friendly countries are showing up there and not willing to learn the ways of the Japanese. Right. That's that's uh, that's very true. There's um, I think the among among the locals, there, it's there's quite a bit of relief that over the last few years, trash cans and recycled uh, bins have finally started to come back in train stations, public spaces. But largely, that it's not due to, like you said, uh, the Japanese will. It's because Japan's in the middle of a tourism boom right now. They've got millions of people visiting each year from countries that you know, don't necessarily understand the local culture, don't understand how Japan handles its trash. So it's really just been a practical matter of, okay, we have all these overseas visitors coming in. We need to adapt to this new reality. Right. So, um, Nick, one thing we should acknowledge as you work towards that zero waste goal is we're not good at this in this country yet. I mean, since the EPA began tracking plastics recycling in 1994, the rate went up as high in 2014 at to 9.5% of plastics that were recycled. Uh, so not even quite 10%. And that was the peak. It's gone down since then. I mean, we all think that somehow or other we're going to solve this through recycling. doesn't seem that uh, all that likely. No, and I'm glad you brought that up about Alan's piece. I mean, again, Alan, I've you know, read your piece, and that was a very the striking part. I kind of underlined that was um, this piece that, you know, they just produce less waste than we do. So, yes, it is, you know, a little inconvenient to have to come home after a night out with all this stuff, but it's, it's going to be less stuff than the average American is going to produce. And if, you know, listeners, one thing to really take away from what we're really trying to do here in Philadelphia and this country in general uh, is it, we have to focus on waste reduction. Recycling is good. It creates a marketplace. We do need to think about the finite resources we have on this planet as we manufacture goods, but we also need to figure out how to create, you know, how to, you know, thrive in this, you know, industrialized modern society that we're in while at the same time reducing the amount of waste because what we're doing right now is unsustainable. It's not just, you know, we fill up our trash cans too much. We're filling up landfills. We're facing the same thing in Philadelphia. That's why that Tokyo has um, is we're, we're running out of space in this area to actually to have landfills being built. We have to better manage the waste. I mean, when I was in Tokyo, they have a whole island that's dedicated to waste management. Um, It's just this big waste management campus that has all different kinds. I went to one, they were turning food waste into dog food. It was or animal feed. It was incredible. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that we really need to start thinking about, circular economy here in this uh, in the States. All right. We have to stop here. Uh, people should check out Alan Richard's. It ends with the letter Z. His article is in City Lab. Uh, he's uh, the author of, most pertinently, Carefully, Japan Reconsiders the Trash Can. Uh, Nick Esposito is the director of the City of Philadelphia's Zero Waste and Litter Cabinet. Nick, has been so great talking to you, but I should tell you that I'm a Packers fan. Tomorrow night, Eagles are going down. You guys are going down. Uh, Not if the Sean Jackson's back. We'll <laughs> All right. Dream on. Uh, okay. We have to take a break, and we'll come back. We'll tell you about uh, an experiment to alter the way that the sun warms the earth. And we're the members of the trash can band. We're the all-American tin can banging, bottle-tooting band. We got a little trash can song. We hope it works.
What I do, and I admit it's not practical, is bring my own trash can with me wherever I go. I had to buy a pickup truck so I could load it in the back, but it was so worth it. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is preparing for the Piscine era. The part of Bill Curry was played by Iron Eyes Cody. We'll return tomorrow with our tribute to doomed entrepreneur painters Bob Ross and Thomas Kincaid. And now... Back to Colin. So uh, we're back. Uh, we've been talking uh, in, a, in a larger way and, and then in a smaller way about the, uh, no, the notion of an Anthropocene epoch, uh, a, a world which, in which humankind has essentially altered the geological and environmental nature uh, of the planet itself. Uh, if that's the case, one wonders if we could do some engineering that was a little bit better uh, than the bad engineering that we've done so far. And one thing that gets talked about a lot is the sun-dimming uh, experiment idea, uh, better known or more appropriately known as solar geoengineering, an idea that's been around for a while. In fact, I believe uh, Edward Teller, one of the inventors of the hydrogen bomb, was an early proponent, I mean, later on, later on in his career. Uh, of this idea. So joining us now is Jen Dai. I hope I'm saying that. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, PhD candidate at Harvard's uh, John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, member uh, of the Keith Group uh, working uh, on, I guess, the Scopex research team on solar geoengineering. Uh, Welcome to our show. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, explain what this is. The whole, the whole idea is, uh, since the planet's warming up too fast, to figure out if there's a way, I guess, essentially to slow down the sun. Would that be fair? Um, so solar engineering, as you mentioned, it, it is roughly one way to uh, reflect part of the sunlight back to the space in order to um, moderate some of the climate hazards on Earth. So the way that you would do this is to spray something, use a weather balloon, at least the way this experiment goes, is to use a weather balloon to spray something into the stratosphere to reflect that sunlight? Uh, yeah, that is uh, the goal of Scopex. And uh, let me just be clear about the goal of the, of the experiment. It is, like you said, an experiment and not a way to deploy solar geoengineering. So Scopex is intended as a very small-scale experiment that's not actually going to have any real climate uh, climate effects. Um, and it is one way for us to study um, the risks and efficacies of solar geoengineering. Right. So, But this would be the first uh, experiment, I believe, of this kind that has been done, at least at that, at, at this, that altitude and to this degree. And, and so what, what will you try to measure? First of all, you should say, what is it that you're going to spray into the stratosphere? Uh, so the exact engineering details about the project is still kind of in the working, uh, but we are, well, the team is thinking about spraying, uh, firstly, some water vapor. Uh, to test the detection capabilities of Scopex as a project. And then we might also uh, proceed in spreading some calcium carbonate particles uh, to, to do the real test. Right. So uh, first, first some water vapor and then calcium carbonate. If you have any left over, I do have re- reflux, and I believe that's uh, actually used in, in antacid tablets, right? Uh, sorry, can you repeat? Um, calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate would be a pretty familiar thing to a lot of people because it's in tablets. I think that we take for for antacids for stomach acid, right? Yeah, it's actually a very uh, harmless 
uh, material that is used in a lot of industrial processes. And as you mentioned, it's in tums, it's in chalks, and it's actually used as a whitening uh, material for paper. So um, the the notion would be that would be there, that would be uh, sprayed into the environment, and then you would see whether it had an effect on how much solar warmth penetrates it? Uh, no, actually, uh, that is <laughs> importantly not the goal of Scopex. So the model material we're trying to, well, the team is trying to spray is very tiny. It's uh, 200 grams to 2 kilograms. So mm. that that's really not enough to cause any kind of climatological right. uh, impacts, and it wouldn't really have any measurable impact on the solar radiation. Um, the, the goal of the project is really kind of twofold. Uh, first of all, we want to perform this experiment to understand, uh, for example, things like aerodynamics or uh, the chemical properties of the particles as they exist in the stratosphere. And secondly, we also want to develop a good governance uh, structure uh, for for, the, for this experiment, obviously, but also for future solar geoengineering field experiments. Right. So this this is uh, going to be a rather minor event uh, in the life of the planet, <laughs> a very, very minor event, what you're doing. I and mean, the amount's not very big. The area that it would cover in the stratosphere is not very big. You're more, in a way, what you're doing, I think, is trying to explore some of the things that people worry about. Like, let's say it came down to this. Let's say we really started thinking in a much larger and more strategic way about some kind of solar geoengineering. People immediately worry that it would backfire somehow, right? That that rather than yeah. So go ahead, talk about that a little bit. Um. So Scopex, um, as you mentioned, is a pretty small experiment and is aimed at improving our understanding of solar engineering. And it's uh, really just one of the broader aspects uh, in our entire research program at Howard. Um, so Scopex specifically addresses uh, some concerns related to the science of solar geoengineering, but uh, we also have a lot of research effort in exploring, for example, the climate, climatological impact of solar geoengineering in climate models. Uh, we have a small indoor experiment that has the stratospheric chemical impact of solar geoengineering. Uh, we also have a range of uh, policy researchers that aims at addressing governance issues or public policy issues of solar geo. Right. We should say that, you know, one of the other controversies is, you know, how much, how many of our resources, how much of our money, even globally, as we try to mitigate climate change, address it, study it, learn about it, how much of it should be put into something like this? This ultimately is something that we would use in a remedial way if a lot of other stuff didn't work and there were, uh, there was a real need to, to mitigate the actual effects of the sun. Um, and I think you're group believes that whole idea, which is not fun, funded really almost a little bit over 0%, I think, of the money spent on, on all the climate change stuff is spent on this, correct? Uh, that is right in two aspects. Firstly, in terms of deployment, um, I think the economic input due to the direct technological uh, input to solar geoengineering projects is very tiny compared to the impacts of climate change. Um, that's not including the impact on the climate that would consequently have more impact on uh, the eco- economy of 
for example, U.S. Uh, the second aspect is that uh, we also feel like the amount of money going to solar geo research, which is what we are promoting, um, it's pretty tiny compared to what people think should be put into solar geo research. So this is actually uh, one of our research findings from a survey project that we did a while back and the interview project that I'm working on right now with uh, U.S. and Chinese uh, climate experts. Uh, I think quite unanimously, experts feel like about 5% of uh, climate change research funding should go into solar geo research. But in fact, right now, there's very little, like close to 0% of the funding that is contributing to the research. Right, closer to 0 than to 1. So um, (laughs) so that's, uh, yeah, this is something that maybe we hope we don't ever have to use, but if we're ever going to have to use it, we better know how it works and and that it can be used safely, right? Yeah, that is exactly right. And that is why we're doing the research um, right now, right? It's now that we're trying to push forward the deployment. In fact, now fast at Howard want to want solar geo to come to effect. Um, but what we do want to do is to understand the risks and benefit of solar geoengineering just in case that it becomes useful and that it actually uh, mediate some of the effects of climate damage, then we would want to have a good understanding of those things. All right. Jin Dai, thank you so much for talking to us. PhD candidate at Harvard's John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, member of the Kith Group, uh, working on the Scopex research team on solar geoengineering. An experiment will be tried sometime in the fairly near future. Thanks to Josh Nalea for uh, conceiving this show. All I had was trash cans. He decided to tackle the whole planet. Uh, and to Kion Wolf for making it sound so good. We'll be back tomorrow with our show about two very commercial painters.